Mark chapter 12 says this, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Verse 18, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Verse 28, and when the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. 38, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. I promise we are not trying to get through Mark as soon as we can. Some of these passages just end up being longer than others. You know, it dawned on me uh, as Sunday was approaching that uh, it would be four years ago, actually to the day that we first met as a tiny core group at a place called Eastgate Bible Church, a couple miles down the road where we meet currently in Ashland at this, at this tiny little church. They let us meet there from uh, 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think I'm right, uh, we had about 35 people that first Sunday, but... 20 of them were just trying to be nice, all right? It was like 20 pity dates, like showing up like with their Bible in their hand, you know, with this look on their face saying, hey, you know, you're gonna owe, you know, you, you owe us one for this one, pal. And I, I think I probably still owe some people some money for that one that I haven't paid. But honestly, um, what's interesting is I was thinking back to this is, um, man, we have not made a ton of advancements since that first Sunday. I mean, behold, right? We have not made a ton of advancements. I, I, think, um, I think I was wearing this shirt you know, that, that first Sunday, right? Um, we actually, uh, if, if you compare it to uh, the, the building we meet at in, in Ashland, we actually had more bathrooms before we moved to the warehouse in Ashland where we have one, one bathroom. I mean, dude, it's actually worse. What I'm describing to you is it's worse now than it was when we were meeting in Eastgate Bible Church. But um, what's interesting, though, is that uh, the other thing that hasn't changed for us is that we are a church of people who find themselves on a spectrum, so to speak. We find ourselves as people engaged as the church body, we find ourselves on the spectrum of either distance or nearness to God. All of us tonight are on that spectrum somewhere of either distance or nearness to God. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for years and you know what, you continue to grow nearer to him. You engage in the body. You have moments in your life of consistent prayer 
where you engage with Jesus by his word. Some of you guys are still growing nearer to him. Some of you are in a place or in a season where you've reached kind of a spiritual standstill, where you just feel like, man, I just, I feel a little stuck right now. I mean, I'm here, I feel like maybe I'm engaging, but there's a part of me that is just not able to move forward, and I feel like I'm not really progressing in my walk with the Lord. Some of you are on the other side. Some of you are actively just drifting. Some of you guys might actually come. You might attend Sunday gatherings or you might go to a community group. But there's a part of you, your heart is literally drifting away from the things of God because there's really nothing in your life, there's nothing in your heart that's being drawn to him, right? You're not engaging in the things of God. You're not sweetening your appetite and your affection more deeply for Jesus. And still others of you have yet to even start that journey of growing nearer to God. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that as we move through Mark 12. But here's the thing, walking with Jesus, which is what we named this series, walking with Jesus through the gospel mark, walking with Jesus is a life spent intentionally drawing nearer to Jesus while at the same time guarding against drawing nearer to things that are like Jesus, but aren't Jesus at all. Do you guys hear me with that? The easiest thing for a church to do is to, to shift its focus, right? To things that are like Jesus, but not really Jesus. It's kind of like a, it's like a wedding. Um, you know, you guys have been involved in a wedding where all the focus, right? I mean, all the money and all the planning and the panic and the bridezillas and like all that stuff, like all the focus is going towards the wedding and like nobody talks about like the thing that kind of matters, which is like the marriage, but all the focus goes towards the wedding, you know? And that's such an easy thing for us as a church to be aware of, be on guard against so that we don't fall into losing that kind of focus. And again, that's why, you know, for those of you who've been to our members meetings, man, they, they don't look like a scene out of Fight Club, right? Like we don't do that. We don't spend time arguing about whether to install that beautiful new aqua blue carpet because it reminds us of our church experience from when we were growing up, right? Like we don't, we don't do that, right? We don't get in wars about music. I mean, this is it. I mean, you know, love it or leave it, this is it, right? Like we don't get into those kinds of wars. We don't make our members sign a document to abstain from alcohol, right? We wanna stick to what the Bible tells us and requires of us, right? We don't get into debates about how we're gonna reach the kids, man. And we don't do that kind of stuff. We don't wanna fall away from what it is that the Bible tells us that it requires and that it wants of us as followers of Christ, which is to draw nearer to Christ. Do you guys hear me with that? We want to put our emphasis on what we believe are matters of first importance. We wanna know God's word. We don't just want to know God's word, we want to believe God's word. And by virtue of that, we want to love God. And we want to live like Jesus. So here's a question to sort of open up our time. Are you drawing nearer to God's kingdom? And by God's kingdom, I mean with Jesus. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom, but it was all about Jesus. That's the establishment. That's what God established. When you hear the word God's kingdom, you want to think Jesus. But are you drawing nearer to that? Where do you find yourself on that spectrum tonight in terms of nearness or distance? 
That's who Jesus is engaging with here as we open Mark 12. And so we're just gonna pick up in verse one, we're gonna start unpacking some really unique interactions that Jesus had by people who were just assaulting him. They were trying to discredit him. These were some of his greatest opponents. Again, remember, Jesus is days away from the cross, and this is what he's being faced with. And as we go down to verse 1 through 16, we see that Jesus actually finally, after all of these parables he's been telling as a way to conceal his identity, he finally reveals himself. I remember last week, one of the things we learned in Mark 11 was that faith in Jesus, what? Bears fruit like Jesus. So before Jesus gets pulled in for just these three rounds of verbal assaults by his opponents, he decides to share this rather violent Brothers Grimm-like parable, right? Which reads a lot like the cartoons my parents used to let me watch when I was a kid, if, I, if, I'm, being, if I'm being honest, right? But what Jesus is doing here is he's pulling the imagery of this parable from the Old Testament book of, of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, which spoke of Israel's failure to produce fruit and how God judged them for it. So what happens is as we look down at this parable, we learn the story of a man who plants a vineyard. He leases it out to some tenants. And when he sends his servant to collect his profits or, or fruit, it says, the tenants beat him up and they send him back with nada. So the owner, he keeps sending his servants. And over time, man, it's just, it's the same pattern, right? They either keep getting beaten up or killed. Now look, man, if you're a servant at this point, you see that this is not going good, right? I mean, you're like, just can you take it out of my pay? Because like, I don't want to go, man. I don't want to deliver the news this time because it hasn't gone great. But the owner decides instead, he says, I'm going to send my, my son. I'm going to send my beloved son thinking, well, they'll respect him. But instead, the tenants end up killing the son. Not only that, but they, they throw him out of the vineyard, which would have been a, a highly disrespectful way, believe it or not, to kill somebody back then without a burial. They just throw him out. Believing that by doing that, the inheritance now will be theirs. They've removed an obstacle. And now they have free reign to the vineyard. So Jesus asks, well, what, what's the owner going to do about this? Well, he says he'll destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. And of course, what Jesus is doing here is not so subtly referring to himself in this parable but by pointing out that, man, all through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, God sent his prophets or servants, is another word for them, to speak to the people on his behalf. But what happened time and time again is that the Israelites just rejected his words over and over again. God's desire was to draw near to a people who kept pushing him away. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, 22 through 23 in verse 10. And what he does is he applies this, the psalm to himself. The rejected stone being a metaphor for the rejection he was now facing. He would now be facing in his journey to the cross. But that God would use as the chief cornerstone to accomplish his marvelous plan of salvation. So Jesus finally reveals his identity to this, these opponents of his through a parable instead of concealing it like he'd been doing this all this time. Now, as teachers of God's law, would these dudes have been familiar with the scripture that Jesus quoted? I mean, would they have known that when he quoted that psalm? Yeah, they would have known it. And what that shows us, what that tells us is that you can know and not believe. 
You can know and not believe. You can know God's word without believing God's son. You know, faith is not just the ability to quote your life verse from memory. Faith is not the nine summers that you invested at youth camp from ages eight through 16. That's not faith. You don't have faith because you were raised by parents with morals and family values. Yay, morals and family values. It's not faith. None of those experiences have any power to create nearness to God for you or for me. Now, the religious leaders knew that this parable was a thinly veiled attack on them. It's what it says. So they, they double down. Like these dudes double down and they send out some of their best and brightest to try and assault Jesus with three questions to try and trap him. They're looking to eliminate Jesus. They're going to get their wish in just a few days, but they're not there yet. So question one, as we look down in verse 13 through 17, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians setting Jesus up with a political question about taxation that would essentially force him to identify with those who were either for or against Rome. It was the ultimate setup for Jesus. So in other words, follow me here, if Jesus sides against taxation, he would be accused of rebellion against Rome. But if he supported it, he would lose support by the, the people who followed him that generally were very opposed to Roman rule, right? And we learned that all through Mark. What the people were really looking for Jesus to do was to relieve them from the oppression of Rome. They wanted a political leader. So that was kind of the pickle that Jesus finds himself in. And you know what I love, man? He just gives like the Jeopardy winning answer, right? He goes Alex Trebek on him right here. And he says this, he says, give to Caesar what's his. Give to God what's his, right? He doesn't fall for the trap. He basically says, no, 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 no. There's, there's a way for us to give to the people in our society, the leaders of our government that is due them, that is owed them, but there's also an opportunity to give to God. Now, I mean, isn't, isn't everything God's? I mean, we, it causes us to ask that question. Well, yeah, but God also appoints leaders. So by paying taxes to support our leaders, one honors God. So this is the answer that Jesus gives just to shut down the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, it doesn't end there because the Sadducees come next to derail Jesus in verses 18 through 27. Now, this is who these dudes were. This was a wealthy well-educated, politically affluent group of dudes, which, again, sounds just lovely when described like that, right? But they were not well-loved by the masses, what we know about them. And one of the, the peculiar things about them, one of the things that they disagreed vehemently with the Pharisees over, one point of doctrine was that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they come to Jesus to challenge him uh, to this, just this hypothetical scenario of absurd proportions, this story that they, that they lay out for him. So here, here's, here's what it's all about. The Old Testament law stated that if a man died without any children, the brother of the man would need to marry his widow and produce offspring for him. Okay, I know, clearly not a Western concept, right? As all of you women are now thinking what life would be like married to your husband's brother someday, right? I get that. I get that. That's happening right now in your heads. It's happening in my head right now, too, thinking of that for some of you. So what the, the Sadducees do is they just concoct this just ridiculous 
story about a woman who marries seven husbands who all die without ever producing any offspring, and they ask who her husband will be in the resurrection that they don't believe in, right? And Jesus comes back at them in verse uh, 24, and he says this, is this not the reason you are wrong? Don't you love the way Jesus answers? He's not trying to sort of, you know, come around the side. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? And then he goes on to explain what's really happening in that situation when we get to heaven. And then even more importantly, for the sake of the Sadducees, he says, God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. So you guys need to rethink this position about resurrection that you have because it's in error. And of course, what's most damning about this go around is that Jesus accuses them of neither knowing the scriptures or the power of God. That's what he levels at them. That's where they found themselves on this spectrum of nearness or distance to Christ. Then we get to question three, a scribe approaches Jesus, verses 28 through 34. This is the moment that if we're Jesus, and we're not, thankfully, we'd be like, dude, how many beatdowns do you boys need before you stop interrogating me? Like, this is insane, like, what do I have to do, right? Because nobody ever wins when they approach Jesus. It's insane, right? This time it's a scribe who approaches Jesus, but it's unclear what his intentions really are. He asks this question, he says, which commandment is most important of all in, in verse 28? And then Jesus actually quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and uh, he, he says this as we look down. He says, the most important is this in verse 28, 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. In fact, if we go to Matthew 22, verse 40, Jesus tells us, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, if we're loving God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves, we will fulfill all of God's other commandments by virtue of keeping these two. That's what he's trying to point out. And you know what's amazing? What's amazing is that unlike these other dudes that are assaulting and trying to discredit Jesus, this scribe reinforces Jesus' point by saying, yeah, to love God and one's neighbors counts for more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law is what he's saying. In other words, this is how a person truly keeps God's laws. And Jesus commends him and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So unlike the two groups that came before him, the scribe seemed to lack some of that hostility that Jesus kept experiencing from his opponents. Maybe, maybe it was that his heart was softening to the truth about Jesus. We weren't really told here in the, in, the, in the text. But then after this final confrontation, that's it. His opponents give up. The assault is over. They dared not ask any more questions, it says at the end of verse 34. So Jesus instead starts teaching. He picks up the mantle. Jesus asks and answers his own question now by interpreting a prophetic psalm where David refers to his future son as Lord. And the reason why that's strange and the reason why that language is strange and it would have been strange for them um, to use was because a son was always subordinate uh, to his father, right? 
A son was always second in command. A son was always underneath the father. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's pointing out. He's again revealing something more clear about his identity. He's pointing out that a greater king than David would come from the line of David in the person of Jesus. Again, it's this opportunity that he's given them to understand that I am the fulfillment of the scriptures. I am your opportunity to draw near to God. I am the fulfillment of all these old prophecies. You are just not believing me. But it says the people that listened to him, the throngs, they received his words with gladness. Interesting. So different from the men that were coming at him to derail him. Here were people that were soft and receptive to the truth. And the result of that, that softness and that receptivity was a gladness of heart. Isn't that interesting? That softness of heart meant that they could receive the words of Jesus with joy. But then Jesus issues a warning about the scribes in verse 38. He warns the people about them. Because these were the people again. Who were these people? They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that had a great influence on the doctrine that the people believed and received. And he just warns them. He just calls these dudes out. He calls out their hypocritical behavior. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like when you watch the Academy Awards, the way he describes these dudes in verse 38. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. And then he kind of drops this in verse 40. Who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And I don't know, that, that kind of reminded me of just sort of this celebrity culture, like when you watch the, the Golden Globes or the Academy Awards. I mean, I'm not anti-Academy Awards and Golden Globes. I, I like all that stuff. But it can all feel so super, uh, superficial, can it? Because we all like getting pats on the back, and we all like accolades, and we all like being praised. And what we're doing when we watch those kinds of like award shows is we're watching all the people that actually have the platform to get it, because <laughs> none of us have that platform to get it, Right? But again, it's just this idea of basking in the glow of self-congratulations. But you know what's interesting is these scribes, these dudes don't seem nearly as subtle. They loved the accolades, but they used their position to take advantage, it says, of the widows. Who, by the way, would have been some of the most vulnerable people in that time, in that society. Because again, when, when a woman became a widow, it's not like she just went back and like resumed her career that she had before she got married. I mean, she was left without means. She was left without any sort of way to have an income and to buy food and to be taken care of. And I think what happens next actually is so important for really our main point in looking at this passage today. After all of this, after just getting hammered by these groups of men by being assaulted by people that were trying to take him down, Jesus issues this warning and then he repositions himself. Let's not miss sort of the mood of what's happening right now. Let's not miss the movements of Jesus. He repositions himself in the temple and he makes really this rather moving observation. It's kind of like at the end of a movie when everything goes silent except for the music and the plot seems to finally 
come to fruition and completion. Man, there had been so much conflict in his life leading up to the cross. So much unbelief, even that day, and all of his confrontations. And then a widow shows up at the temple. It couldn't have been a less dramatic scene. Nobody in the temple would have noticed or given this woman a second thought. And yet, Jesus shows us how near this woman was to him. He makes an observation, verse 41 through 44, as the rich and the affluent of that culture are coming into the temple. They're dropping just big checks in the offering box. But it's a widow. It's a widow. It's a vulnerable woman who catches the eye of Jesus. And what does she do? Well, it says she puts in two copper coins that were worth a penny. It was nothing. It was so little money. I mean, if that temple was doing a capital campaign, this wouldn't have been enough to even count in the grand total. But somehow, it moves Jesus. And it moves him to the point where he, he brings the fellas over to observe what he's observing. And he says, look, you guys, she's put in more, he says. She's given away all she has to give. And in just this, this moment, this split second, we get a glimpse of those who are nearest to God. And actually, they discussed this before. They discussed this idea of giving everything to God and what the implications were. If we go back to chapter 10, verse 28 through 31, let's read that. When we were reading the, the story of the rich young ruler who didn't want to give away anything because his possessions had a hold on him. They were possessing him. And he didn't want to give away anything to follow Jesus as Jesus instructed him to do. And so Peter says in verse 28, 10, 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands with persecutions. That's the cherry on top. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus was pointing out that this widow was giving everything that she had and yet she would be taken care of and yet the kindness of God would not be absent from her life. These lessons that they learned in chapter 10 would be reinforced by the actions of the poor widow. So that was a lot. That was a big chunk. We just, we just flew through. What, is this, what does this mean for us? As we go through this literal mountain of verses, you're like, yeah, Martin, 44 of them. We're still with, we're sitting right here. We haven't gotten up and left. Such a wide cast of characters though, isn't it? As we look back, all on the spectrum, somewhere on the spectrum of distance or nearness to God. So here's the question again. Where are you on the spectrum? 
who do you best resemble as we go back and look at this cast of characters? Here's a question. In what ways does your life put a question mark on the words of Jesus? Because that's what's happening here with Jesus' opponents. Their words are putting a question mark on the words of Jesus. There was a distinct lack of nearness to Jesus with these men. Do you share that distinct lack? Can you trace that in your life? In other words, if we could put your heart under like a Holy Spirit brand microscope, would we just see a religious person? Is that what would pop out? If we talk to Jesus, what person would he see when he observes you? Would he see a Pharisee? Would he see a Sadducee? Would he see the scribe? Or would he see a widow who had nothing but gave everything? Because drawing near to God's kingdom, what we see in this text, drawing near to his kingdom is giving everything to Jesus like Jesus gave to us. That's what it is. Because, you know, when you look at the Pharisees and the Herodians, man, these were dudes that knew God's word, right? They knew God's word. But is knowing God's word enough? Here's what I mean. Is knowledge sufficient? Is being able to pass a Bible quiz the mark of someone who knows God's word or knows God? So when I was in sixth grade, when I was 10 years old, there was this horrible uh, broadcast, there's this horrible channel on TV, it's still on, it's called the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Stay away from TBN. Do not, if you accidentally turn it on and you see the guys in the white suits, just keep flipping. Keep flipping. But anyway, they had a game show for kids called the One Way Game. Not making this up, all right? All my stories are always true up here, unless I say they're a lie. Okay, this is true. So they had a game show for kids called the One Way Game where they would invite kids on and they would test your Bible knowledge. And, you know, if you, if you, kept, if you kept winning, you'd go through like four of them and then you'd like win, you know, the, the one, you'd be the One Way Game champion, right, by, by the end of it. So I, Big R here got invited to, to be on the One Way Game. I won. Champ, right, champion right here. The champ of the One Way Game, right? I, I don't know, you know, again... I was talking to Matt Chandler about this, uh, you know, there was no, pro I don't know what they gave me. I, I won nothing for it, right? I don't remember a trophy. I don't remember a certificate. I don't remember cash. You know, I remember just thinking, what, this is like what I get? I just got to do this? I just got to be on a TV show that hopefully nobody's watching? Like that, that was my payment for, for winning the one-way game? Here's my bigger point with this, okay? I knew some of God's word, but it would be years before I knew God but I was the one-way game champion. I was the champ. But it was like the Pharisees who knew God's word, but they didn't know God. Maybe you're more like the Sadducees who, who don't know God's word or God, right? Maybe church feels more like a buffet to you. Maybe church is more like a smorgasbord. Maybe you come to church or maybe you've been in a church scenario where, where you're more like a critic. You're like the Sadducees. You pick and choose what it is you want to believe because it suits your sensibilities and your lifestyle and your comfort level. 
If that's you, I'm, I'm actually glad you're here. Thank you for coming. But listen, to stay in that place, to remain in that place, to come to church, to engage in church activities as a critic, as one who just receives and accepts what's ever most convenient for you, but any fruit being produced in your life, to stay in that place is an assault on the cross of Christ. It's an assault on Christ, just like the Sadducees. Or maybe you're like the scribe. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not hostile to God. You're like, dude, I don't, man, I'm not, like I come, I mean, I, I, I believe this. I, mean, I don't feel like I'm against God's word or God or church. You know, I'm not one of those guys. And maybe you even acknowledge the call to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You'd say, yeah, no, no, I, I get it, that's true. But you don't have a heart that's been, been transformed with the desire to, to live it out. You're not hostile, but you also haven't been heartbroken by the gospel to pursue those things. The problem is that none of these men that we read about today were loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength or their neighbors as themselves because if they were, their lives would have better reflected the actions of the poor widow who reflected the heart of Jesus. Having a knowledge of God without a love for God's son leads to death without God. That's what it leads to. And this inevitably brings us back to the truth and the beauty of the gospel, which is this, that Jesus gave everything he had in his poverty. Scripture tells us he had nowhere to lay his head. He died on a Roman cross, a humiliating death. On the night of his death, all of his friends abandoned him. He was somebody who had nothing in terms of worldly standards. But the result was resurrection. The result was a riches that now all of us who God has called can find. An inheritance now available to us with God forever. As we close, I don't want us to miss something, and it's this. I don't want us to miss the humanity of the people who Jesus shows kindness and compassion to in contrast to those who attempt to discredit him. What are some of the lines that Jesus uses here? He says this. He says, you are not far, is what he says. It says the throng heard him what? Gladly. It says, he said, she has given more. You know what that represents to us? It represents nearness. It represents acceptance. It represents abundance. That's what Jesus was getting ready to accomplish on the cross. You know, all of Jesus' opponents assumed they would face God someday holding their resumes in their hand. That's what's going on here. Most of them probably thought they'd face God being vastly overqualified. But the only way God receives us is if we give him the resume his son Jesus created on the cross. Because we don't have one that's worth anything. God draws near to those who come into his presence like the widow, knowing they have nothing but the blood of Jesus. And one of the interesting features of Christianity is that it's the only religion that rejects our accomplishments as entrance to heaven. It's absurd. It's absurdity. 
when you stack it up. In fact, it's our accomplishments that provide the nail in our eternal coffins. Jesus makes it so clear that coming to him with our own wisdom is folly. True wisdom is coming to Jesus with the humility of the widow. So counter to how we think. We talk about that a lot. How counter Christianity is to our natural default. And you know, as I was going through this chapter this week, and I was trying to think why these passages bother me so much. Because they do, and they did, and they do. And then I read this quote from Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in North Carolina and author. And he said this. He said, the most privileged and dangerous place you can be on Sunday is in church because the truth can heal and the truth can harden. So we know that that's true. We know that that's true. And my heart, my heart is that I want all of you to be saved I mean, as your pastor, I want you to be saved. I want your heart to break over your sin. I want you to have reconciliation with God. I want you to experience the grace and forgiveness that comes from the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed. And I have no power to accomplish any of that. And you want an altar call? It doesn't get us there, right? That's not what's gonna do the trick. It all boils down to a commandment we cannot keep. Loving God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. A commandment that we have no power to keep, but that Jesus kept. And only when we draw near to him, as poor sinners who repent and receive his grace and mercy, will we then be able to live a life of love for God and our neighbors the way that forgiven people are able to do. And all of this is predicated on our status before God. Because you know, man, it's not a matter of, of money and affluence and education. Because you know what? David, David had all that. David was a king. But he approached God as a humbled man. The widow. There's no education with her. Who was she? She was somebody that society at large would have just let go and forgotten about her. But she gave out of her poverty. Both David and the widow were accepted in God's eyes because they knew who they were in their own eyes. Where will you be on the spectrum of distance or nearness to God today? Ephesians 2 reminds us, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, all of us are far off, we are born, what? Dead. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Jesus encourages us in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Drawing near to God's kingdom is giving everything to Jesus like Jesus gave for us. And you know what? He actually has to give us the grace to do it. Because ain't none of y'all have anything in you to approach the throne 
with any of your own merit, with any of your own accomplishments. So if something is literally grabbing your heart, it's causing you to say, I want to be near God. This has caused me to think that I've been distant. It's caused me to think I've been more like a Pharisee. It caused me to think that I'm like you on the one-way game, big R. You know what that is? That's God's grace enabling you to see the depths of your sin so that you will be drawn into the riches of his grace and experience nearness to Christ, which will lead to eternity in heaven with him. That's the hope, man. That's the gospel. That's what we preach. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that we can have nearness to you because of the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would convict any of us tonight who have just been going through the motions, who have found themselves in the same place as some of these opponents to Jesus, where we've not had a faith that's been a fruit-producing faith, but we've had one that really has been more about our own comfort and our own desires and our own choices. Lord, I pray, Lord, if anybody is here tonight and they are feeling that conviction, I pray that you would, Lord, enter their heart, cause them to bow before the throne of grace and repent of their sins so that they can receive the grace that you have on offer to them. Grace that is not just a one-time shot but grace upon grace, mercies every morning, the opportunity to live now with a hope in an eternal God who will never let us slip out of his grasp because he paid it all. And we can have so much confidence and assurance in that if we, like the poor widow, would give everything we are to him. Lord, convict us of that. And for those who know you, let us assume this posture. Let us come back to this posture because we know that that is what is the path to life and joy. It's opposite of what we think. It goes counter to what the world is telling us. But we know that it's true because we see it in Christ and we believe Christ and we want to love him and live for him. Help us do that, God. We pray in Christ's name. And together we said, amen. Let's stand.